Hey, Outcomes Rocket friends. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast once again. As a leader in healthcare, you have big ideas, great products, a story to tell, and are looking for ways to improve your reach and scale your business. However, there's one tiny problem. Healthcare is tough to navigate and the typical sales cycle is slow. That's why you should consider starting your own podcast as part of your sales and marketing strategy. At the Outcomes Rocket, I've been able to reach thousands of people every single month that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to reach if I had not started my podcast. Having this organic reach enables me to get the feedback necessary to create a podcast that delivers value that you are looking for. And the same thing goes if you start a podcast for what you could learn from your customers. The best thing about podcasting in healthcare is that we're currently at the ground level, meaning that the number of people in healthcare listening to podcasts is small but growing rapidly. I put together a free checklist for you to check out the steps on what it takes to create your own podcast. You could find that at outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Check it out today and find a new way to leverage the sales, marketing, and outcomes of your business. That's outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring health leaders. Today, I have the outstanding Dr. Ryan Darcy. He's the co-founder and senior scientist entrepreneur for Health Tech Connects. He's a trained in neuroscience and medical imaging. Dr. Darcy holds a BC leadership chair in the medical technology and is full professor at Simon Fraser University. He also serves as the health of health sciences and innovation at Fraser Health's Survey Memorial Hospital and is widely recognized for founding Innovation Boulevard. Dr. Darcy received a BSc with distinction from the University of Victoria, along with his PhD degree in neuroscience. He's done a lot of training and has implemented a lot of design and technologies in the space of biomedical imaging clusters. So I'm really excited to have him on the podcast today and to hear the insights that they're up to. So Ryan, warm welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So anything in that introduction that I missed that maybe you want to fill in? No, no, it, uh, it sounded great. Awesome. So what got you into healthcare, Ryan? I've always loved biology and I think I also always loved technology and physics and then I stumbled on the brain and was just fascinated with the brain, really towards when I was finishing up my undergraduate degree. And, and from there, the rest is, is sort of history because everything I do is, is about using advanced medical technologies to watch the brain in action and help uh, primarily from a neurology, neurosurgery st- standpoint, but increasingly broadening out from there. Well, it's super interesting, uh, the work that you've taken on. I'm personally fascinated by neuroscience and and I'm intrigued about the discussion we're about to have. What would you say, Ryan, is, is the hot topic that needs to be on every medical leader's agenda today? Oh, well, the hot topic on every medical leader's agenda today, I think for me, it's not so much about the buzzword of innovation as more about sort of the translation and implementation of innovative uh, lab findings. So, so I think the hot topic is really the idea that, you know, medical training really trains sort of a procedure and don't deviate from that procedure. Right. And when you have a world that is kind of thrusting on with new innovative solutions that are about, you know, really trying things that might be risky or new or novel or that sort of thing, the hot topic is 
for us as a society to find ways to embrace that, particularly to find ways to allow clinicians to embrace their inner, inner innovator. And, um, you know, still, of course, be completely, you know, highest quality and safety and patient care, the whole thing. But really, that's going to just bring so much advance so much more quickly. And I think that's got to be the hottest topic in my mind. I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, embracing that inner innovator is what you called it. And I think a lot of clinicians uh, and physicians want to do this. But to your point, Ryan, you're just sort of limited to what you could do because of the training. And so it'd be interesting to hear your insights that how can they do this better? What techniques could they use? What tools can they use to embrace and encourage their inner innovator? Well, you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of forces at work that any, any clinician could tell you they feel on a day-to-day basis that it, once you've had an idea of a way you can do something better, it's, it's really challenging to know, okay, well, how exactly would I make that happen? And, and I think it takes a lot of bravery in an otherwise extremely busy job to find, you know, solutions to that. If you're seeing in your practice, you know, there's, there's an obvious innovation. There's the step from identifying it to you know, implementing it successfully in, in a few patients and scaling it to many is really something that both from a training standpoint is counter to the training. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a systems administration standpoint, historically hasn't been something that, you know, you might find encouragement in, in universities, but in hospitals that are busy delivering services, that's not something that's top of their radar. So I think that what we're seeing in, is really f- interesting to watch is forces outside of the hospital system are starting to make that more possible. Particularly, we're seeing shifts in, as we are across the world, in care um, being delivered outside of the hospital and more community care-based and much more um, a shift from a paternalistic model to kind of, you know, the patient uh, managing their own services and that sort of thing and more kind of shifts and trends that way are actually a good thing for clinicians because it's creating creating a new circumstance that allows them to, to sort of, whether they like it or not, digital health would be an excellent example, have to really tackle uh, some of these innovations. And the last thing, particularly if I use the Canadian healthcare system as an example, we just simply can't outspend our way out of the problems we're having in terms of uh, the clinical care delivery in busy hospitals with congestion and that sort of thing. So when you bring the word innovation as a way, as a new way to solve problems, I think that's really helping us. And it's particularly helping us when we start to entertain the idea of, you know, learning things quickly in our private sector and then actually allowing them to get tested there and then make their way into our public healthcare systems. So big forces are, I think, changing things. That's pretty interesting that, that you sort of frame it that way, Ryan. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that I like to think about as it relates to innovation within the healthcare system is that a good way to start is on the process and workflow innovations that don't necessarily directly aim at patient therapies and things like that. What's your thought process on that? Sort of just scaling from process to patient therapies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Some of the most innovative things are the things that are the least threatening to the system and the fastest to incorporate, right? So, I mean, with your background working in medical technologies, those are what we traditionally think of as innovation and we built traditional thought patterns around, well, then this must apply. But 
I absolutely agree a thousand percent with you that some of the most innovative things we've done that have been rapid and had big outcomes have been uh, shifts in, in just process and low-hanging fruit that were in the healthcare system that helped the, you know, not only the clinicians, but also the administrators to understand, oh yeah, this really can be an impactful thing and it can impact service delivery in a positive way. So let's learn more about it and let's try and tackle the, the more complex things. So, so I think, you know, viewing innovation as building a new MRI versus uh, better public health uh, around hand washing, for example, you know, it's a continuum. And when you tackle mm-hmm. the ones that are, are more easy and obvious, if you start there first, it makes it easier to hit the harder ones. Yeah, that's so interesting. So take us down um, a neuroscience pathway here. How can we take a look at this topic of innovation and neuroscience? What can we use from neuroscience to get better? Well, that's my favorite area, so I'm happy to take you down there. We really focus on being highly translational and being highly outcome-oriented, mm-hmm. and I have a pathology of being very tangible. I, I only like to get involved in things I know are going to make an impact, positive impact on the person sitting in front of me. And so a couple of examples where that's been have been from an evaluation standpoint, there's a huge gap in neurology from being able to do an evaluation and diagnosis at the sort of clinic side things really haven't changed that much. You know, Mm -hmm. neuropsychology is done with paper and pencil testing still. It's moving to computers for sure, but that's not as quick as one would have hoped. Structural MRIs are still used to diagnose and evaluate, you know, very, very sophisticated changes in brain function and, and, you know, disorders and diseases. And that hasn't really changed too much since the 80s. But if you could walk into an advanced imaging lab like mine, there's a massive gap, a chasm between the two, right? And so we focus on, okay, well, what are some practical ways we can take the super advanced brain imaging that we have in our labs and make impacts on patients that are outcome-based impacts? And one example is um, a very famous, um, uh, when Canada was involved in the Afghanistan as peacekeeper, we had a very mm-hmm. famous case with a soldier who was there as a peacekeeper, was meeting, their platoon was meeting with villagers. Uh, his name was Captain Trevor Green. And his job was to sit down and say, hey, we're Canada. How can we help? What do, can we help you with food, water, education? How can we help? And as a sign of respect, they would take off their helmet, and lay down their sidearms. And a young teenager who was working on behalf of the Taliban came up behind him and buried an axe into the top of his head. Wow. And um, that's a very well-known story. It happened uh, 10 years ago, actually over 10 years now, uh, 12 years ago. And we started working with Captain Green because he was making astonishing goals in proving that his outcome was not predetermined, wasn't a false hope case. In fact, you know, he not only recovered uh, phenomenally from a coma and a whole lot of complications in hospital, but ultimately started a goal to recover his brain function through neuroplasticity and return particularly the ability to walk. And where the axe had struck had uh, impacted a lot of his critical areas of his brain for walking. So what we did is we used advanced imaging techniques that exist and were pretty cookie cutter, to be honest, a a technique called functional MRI, where we could map out the active areas of his brain. Well, he was undertaking his own home rehabilitation. And we would just take these advanced pictures to show that his brain was rewiring, uh, neuroplasticity was engaged, and he was recovering his function beyond any expectation. That was really fun to have back to your point of process and practical, because Mm -hmm. what happened was we could show 
a picture and you know that expression a picture's worth a thousand words well a yes. medical imaging picture is worth many more i think than a thousand and that when the clinicians would see that it was really motivating because they could drive harder at the rehab and and captain green and his wife would drive harder and try and push further and we could also narrow the treatment so we could be more specific to what functions we were trying to help with and as a consequence of that, over the last um, decade, really, he's made leaps and bounds of, into uncharted territory in recovery. And he's inspired countless other brain injury survivors with his story and, and his journey. And so much so, I think the world knows about the Invictus Games, which were recently held in Toronto. And he actually opened them uh, with Prince Harry and uh, Rick Hansen and inspired people across the globe with his recovery currently is an outcome. And I love that to point this out because his outcome as the hospital system had predetermined was to put him in a care home and his, and his wife and child would get on with their life. Now he's training to climb to Everest base camp and we're using amazing technology to do so. And, you know, he's uh, since had another child and is basically out there inspiring people to recover from brain injury. So, so I think that innovation doesn't have to be a new fancy, you know, high tech MRI, although we love those. It can be something as simple as realizing that you can bring the power of something that's in the laboratory in an innovative clinical way to help drive an outcome. And I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, that's so neat. And what a great story. I, I hadn't heard the story of the soldier. And it's an amazing what you guys were able to, to do with some of the techniques and images now available. So walk us through some of the potentially things that, that haven't gone so well, maybe a setback. Not necessarily with a patient, but maybe a, a, something that you tried implementing that maybe didn't work as well as you wanted it to, something you learned from that. Well, I approach this with a long game approach. So I assume that it's going to be a tough uh, go and that there's going to be, it's not going to work out quite as easily as you think. And, and as general, I always, if I hit a barrier, I move laterally until I find a way through and, and just don't give up until I get the, the, you know, the innovation across the line. And certainly the best example of that would be that uh, when I started my training, which I won't tell you how long ago that was, but it was long enough ago that we knew that they could record brain waves and they could be used for evoked potentials to diagnose neurologic conditions. So auditory evoked potentials, um, visual evoked potentials, they're used in a number of different, you know, if there's a question about multiple sclerosis or, you know, if there's a hearing problem versus something more central and that sort of thing. So these were well-established clinical tools. But yet in our laboratories, we had these powerful capabilities to push that farther up the chain and evaluate higher level brain functions, cognitive functions, and that sort of thing. And I remember when I started my training being told that, well, those are too unreliable. That'll never be in the clinic. And I guess it didn't sit right with me. And it turns out that, you know, over the past, uh, over now two decades, I've, I've worked uh, to solve that problem. And that's come with some setbacks for sure. So the first attempt was uh, really to do research that showed that when we did these cognitive evoke potentials, you could overcome a lot of the problems with neuropsychology that are completely reliant on a subjective behavioral response. Mm -hmm. The problem with a, a behavioral response is that if you have a brain injury or brain damage or disease, it decouples your brain function from your behavior. So automatically, your behavior is not the best way to go about finding out how somebody's doing inside. And, and one of the best examples of that for people to really understand would be something like um, if somebody was locked in, if they have uh, right. 
uh, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease would be an example, then their brain is perfectly intact and healthy in terms of cognitive function. It's just they cannot respond behaviorally. And this is a problem that really stymies a lot of evaluation right at the beginning of your critical care decision-making process, right? Because you can't really tell someone's level of function. So our goal was, well, maybe we'll just use these objective physiological brainwaves and electrify, as it were, neuropsychology. Challenge with that was that we made, we made a lot of progress in the laboratory, but it wouldn't necessarily translate easily into the real world in ways that neuropsychologists could you know, switch over what they were doing and you know, all of a sudden record brainwaves. Then we moved to the idea, well, we know about the Glasgow Coma Scale, and when somebody comes into a hospital, a, a Glasgow Coma Scale is one of the sort of metrics that are rapidly used to assess their level of functioning. Can we do the same thing as the GCS, but replace a subjective and error-prone, and just to give a scary statistic, the literature shows that it's actually misdiagnosing as high as 43%. So when you land in an ER and you get a GCS, uh, it's basically a 50-50 chance whether or not uh, the care team knew what that actually meant or if it was Hmm. So could we just upgrade? Pretty low that? and worth investigating, right? Yeah, yeah. So could we upgrade that with brainwaves, right? And record and, you know, do the same thing where it's, it's fast, it's easy to communicate, you can do it at point of care, but instead of you're using physiological objective brainwaves. And we've done that with patients in the, and, and we've done it across the country and we created actually a, a technology version for that. And around that time, the epidemic with concussion and increasing concerns with dementia broke out. And one of the setbacks there was that as a deployed uh, sort of unit, it's not a very big market size for people who are in, let's say, vegetative state. So the business world doesn't want to take that as a product because not necessarily a large market to make money out of. Right. what we focused on was we stood back and we said, well, what's the bigger problem then if this concussion is coming up and that sort of thing? And it occurred to us that actually what's missing is you don't have a simple vital sign for brain function. And you can have and look at all the vital signs you have and how important they are and how you know, things like cardiac risk factors have been informed by vital signs and how ubiquitous they are. And we thought, oh my goodness, we got to change that. So what we did is we, we finally stepped back from that setback to create a framework. We actually reverse engineered it from uh, blood pressure and said, okay, well, if, how did we get blood pressure? How can we extract from EEG a vital sign framework so we could have a simple vital sign for brain? And so over the last five years, we've successfully done that and we've put it into a point of care, um, completely automated device that uh, nice. in five minutes. And we've used that. We use that now um, routinely and are, are scaling it up uh, to have a unique fingerprint for concussion. Uh, we're working in care homes with dementia and a number of other applications uh, just to provide, if you can believe it, finally, hopefully, if we're successful, the world will have a simple yardstick for brain function so they can establish a baseline, find out how a treatment works, find out what's going on, find out if there's rapid uh, de- cognitive function deterioration and that sort of thing. So that's kind of, it started with setbacks, but because of, you know, we're tenacious, we just stayed at it to try and ultimately refine it to something that hopefully will be very impactful clinically in neurology. That is fascinating and great that you guys stayed with it because yeah, I mean, it sounds like we, we are in desperate need for something more accurate and a good baseline. And as it relates to the topic of delirium, for instance, this is a, an increasingly 
sadly topic that comes up more and more, you know, delirium after surgery. How would it help with something like that? Yeah. If at all. Well, it does. It's interesting because in neuroscience, we're always trained to focus on kind of the condition, right? So, you know, you can even right. specialize and be a dementia researcher or, a, you know, a, an epilepsy neurologist or what have you. And effectively, where I really love the technology angle is and the medical imaging angle is it's cross-cutting. So delirium definitely applies because effectively, if I have a yardstick that I can take an objective measure quickly of what your brain function is, and my favorite question to ask is, do you know how your brain is today? Do you know how it was the day before and before that? And if I don't you don't, know. <laughs> how, how are you possibly properly equipped to manage your brain health? Which, when you think about it, is scary because one in three people is. in statistics you know, have something go wrong with their brain health in their lifetime. So you only need three people in a room and one of them will be affected. But it's also scary because we all... I mean, that's the seed of who we are, right? That's what makes our money. It's our soul. It's our spirit. It's our consciousness. It's our personality. So if you don't have so much as a baseline of what is going on, when you come out of surgery and there's a question about delirium, you have nothing to compare it against. But if you have a brain vital sign, you can measure your brain vital sign during surgery. You can measure it. And if you see an issue, you can detect it against your baseline. And after, if there's a question, you can say with an objective and physiological measure, yeah, we actually think there was a change and it was significant. And, and that's kind of what we're trying to go at. So it would apply for huh. delirium, applies to dementia, applies to concussion. It'll apply across all the conditions rather than just focusing on solving concussion, which I think is a silly question because I don't still understand what the answer could possibly be for that question. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And and thanks for expounding on that. I, I was able to wrap my head around the whole topic of, you know, this vital sign, having a baseline, comparing it to pre and post events, pre and post procedures, definitely see the value of, of having something like this. If the listeners were curious and, and wanted to learn more about your work, and the things that you're you're researching, where could they find that? Well, I have a pretty good presence on the web, so they would find it through our company, Health Tech Connects, for sure. There's a lot of research articles, so we, we have a lot of scientific articles that are published on this, that are, and we type, we're, we're really trying to publish an open source articles now so that they're accessible. So, uh-huh. so Frontiers in Neuroscience has the actual science uh, published behind this, as does translational science articles that came out this year. Yeah. And other than that, I think there's a number of media articles that have been done. So I, I certainly would suggest a Google would be a friendly start point for that. Fascinating. Well, there you have it, listeners. Take a look. Ryan has done some pretty interesting work and, and just Google him, Google his work, check out their website and you'll be able to find more if what we talk about today doesn't uh, necessarily satisfy you fully. Because the nice thing is that These episodes are 25 to 30 minutes long. The thing that is a lot of people wish is that they were a little bit longer when topics like these come up and they're super interesting. So tell us a little bit more about an exciting project or focus that you guys are working on today at the company. Well, certainly our our lead goal um, and our very exciting project is to bring brain vital signs to uh, worldwide. So that's our, our major focus. 
but we actually work in a, a district called the Health and Technology District, which is embedded with um, actually not only Canada's busiest hospital, Surrey Memorial, but I think it holds the North American record for most emergency visits in a day. Wow. So we, we work in a, an environment that has a high volume hospital and we built an entire technology sector, health and technology sector within the campus of that hospital. And within that, it's a beautiful fusion of bringing together not only your clinicians who are identifying our problems and we're trying to solve them with technology solutions, but your, your scientists from our universities and also your business. We have a, a whole ecosystem of, of businesses that have uh, technology solutions that we try to bring right into our clinical environment. So it's probably one of the most exciting things is that we've tried to lead by example with our technologies and brain but also create an ecosystem that allows this to be a sustainable uh, model that people can replicate and utilize and, you know, join and partner with. And so um, we spent a lot of time uh, partnering across the United States with Israel, uh, Europe. And uh, as a consequence of that, it's kind of interesting because one of the answers to your question is, when you have the yardstick for brain function and you can objectively measure this, one of the cool sort of outcomes is that a lot of people come your way with treatment solutions because they want to see if we can measure better whether or not their treatments are working. So we've partnered with a company quite closely named Helios, which is a U.S. company that's taking a device called the Pons, uh, which accelerates brain plasticity and recovery from brain injury. And uh, we've done clinical trials with them and have been working scientifically with them to evaluate this completely non-invasive, non-drug, non-surgical technology for accelerating recovery for not only concussion, but other brain injuries. Um, So it's been really fun because effectively, we're really starting to see the most advanced neurotechnologies in the world uh, making their way to us into this ecosystem and being able to validate them, implement them in patients, and help them scale up and get uh, across the globe. Super exciting. Yeah, it didn't even dawn on me, but that's such a great application of this, right? The whole validation piece and all these companies with solutions to brain issues. um, Very, very exciting. And kudos to you and your team for developing the the foundation uh, of what's to be in this brain function space. (laughs) Thank you. So talk to me, Ryan. We're getting close to the end here. We've reviewed a lot about your work, things that are going well, lessons learned. In this this part of the podcast, we go through the 101 on what it is to be successful in, in the business of healthcare. And so I've got four questions for you, lightning round style, followed by a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? For sure. All right. So what is the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? I think by focusing on implementation. Too much has focused on widget building without focusing on a problem and finding a solution you can uh, successfully implement and see that it works. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Definitely the biggest, if you're coming from a clinical point of view, the biggest pitfall to avoid is not being open-minded. Clinicians are overwhelmed and a lot of times it's too easy to dismiss the aspects of innovation and it takes too much work and finding that extra time to investigate and explore allows you to actually improve outcomes just by being your, embracing your clinical innovator. Love that. What would you say an area of focus of your organization is the number one area of focus? 
oh, you know, our, you know, the term BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. We want to absolutely end brain disorders and diseases. We want to make them a thing of the past. Love it. And what would you say is the way to stay relevant as an organization despite all the change? This relates to the book I'm going to suggest. You accept a changing world. And I just finished a book, which is great by choice. And it analyzed all the companies that succeeded in spite of changing and came up with a couple of key factors. One was that either a company or a person who succeeded and thrived in an always changing environment was extremely good at three core things. One was being uh, productively paranoid and always uh, looking for things that could be problems or come up with solutions. The second was being using evidence and being very empirically driven. And the third was discipline and being incredibly disciplined. And then when you combine that with motivation, high stage five motivation sort of stuff, those people uh, can succeed in highly changing times. And I think that that applies more so than anything to healthcare outcomes. I think that recipe and that book are, are really, well, it's born out of the business world. I would hi- highly recommend it for any healthcare leader. Amazing. What a great recommendation and a good framework to consider. Folks, you could get all the things that we've been discussing today, the entire interview transcript, notes and takeaways and links from the podcast. Go to outcomesrocket.health slash Darcy, D-A-R-C-Y, and uh, as Dr. Darcy here, and you'll be able to find all that there. Before we conclude, Ryan, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get in touch with or follow you. Oh, absolutely. So the best place to follow me would be through either um, Health Tech Connects or the Health and Technology District, both of which have uh, websites and are on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. The terms of my closing thought, I would suggest that tackling the brain is really, really rewarding because it's scary. And it's on the outer edge, it's complex, and it's something that you should be scared. Because if you can make success in something like that, it means it's optimistic. You can make success. If I can make successful outcomes in you know, complex brain injury patients, it means that any problem that comes our way in healthcare, there should be solutions that we can find. And it just takes guts. And I think that uh, healthcare innovators are the people that are going to change the way that we deliver our outcomes. That's so interesting. And I think it's a great challenge for you listeners. So make sure that you keep your mind sharp and stay focused, stay resilient with whatever topic you've decided to tackle within healthcare. So Brian, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. I'm excited to get this to the listeners so that they too could get that inspiration that that you are just spreading across your medical facility and and all the people's lives that you're touching. So thanks again for for spending the time with us. Well, thanks all for inviting me and for having me. This was just delightful. Hey, Outcomes Rocket friends. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast once again. As a leader in healthcare, you have big ideas, great products, a story to tell, and are looking for ways to improve your reach and scale your business. However, there's one tiny problem. Healthcare is tough to navigate and the typical sales cycle is slow. That's why you should consider starting your own podcast as part of your sales and marketing strategy. At the Outcomes Rocket, I've been able to reach thousands of people every single 
month that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to reach if I had not started my podcast. Having this organic reach enables me to get the feedback necessary to create a podcast that delivers value that you are looking for. And the same thing goes if you start a podcast for what you could learn from your customers. The best thing about podcasting in healthcare is that we're currently at the ground level, meaning that the number of people in healthcare listening to podcasts is small but growing rapidly. I put together a free checklist for you to check out the steps on what it takes to create your own podcast. You could find that at outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Check it out today and find a new way to leverage the sales, marketing, and outcomes of your business. That's outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. 